It's a great honor to be able to share with you at this Reformation 500 conference as we partner together to advance the sovereign dominion of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. My lecture this afternoon is entitled Three God-Ordained Limitations on the Authority of Civil Magistrates and the Limits of Christians' Obedience to Civil Magistrates. The first limitation of all authority of civil magistrates is due to the triune God's universal covenant with all creation, specifically his covenant with all nations. The triune God is the creator and Lord over everything and everyone. He relates to his creation on the basis of his covenantal law word. He has written the basic requirements of his moral law in the hearts of every person, including every civil magistrate, rendering everyone guilty before God, Romans chapters 1 and 2. The way people universally try to evade God's moral law is by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18, and then behaving autonomously, being their own God, determining truth, good and evil, justice and injustice for themselves, which, of course, goes back to the Garden of Eden. Civil magistrates, being created in the image of God and being God's stewards or servants, as they're called in Romans 13.4, must rule in the fear of God, 2 Samuel 23, 3. Civil magistrates are called to reflect God's justice. Being servants or stewards rather than owners, civil magistrates must recognize that the earth belongs to the Lord, Psalm 24, 1. It does not belong to them or to the state. God's universal covenant is unmistakably brought out in the plethora of Old Testament prophecies spoken to pagan cities and nations. Predictions of judgment against foreign nations are found in every Old Testament prophetic book. For example, consider the first two chapters of the book of Amos, where God brings covenant lawsuit against six pagan nations for violating his law. Esteemed Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart makes these exegetical observations about these chapters, and I quote, Significant about the prophetic oracles against foreign nations is the unmistakable implication that Israel's God has a covenant relationship with nations other than Israel. Yahweh is the punisher of the sins of Aram, that's Syria, Moab, etc. The punishments predicted in the sense described in these oracles reflect, reflect quite directly the Sinai covenant sanctions categories. Yahweh is sovereign over all peoples and places. Yahweh's control and his implicit covenant extend everywhere. The prophecies against eight nations in Amos 1, 3 through 2, 16 teach that there is one God, Yahweh, who has power over the whole earth, and his righteousness will not tolerate unrighteousness on the part of any nation. Yahweh is not merely the God of Israel or Judah, but has an implicit covenant relationship with all nations, through which he expects obedience to a sort of basic divine international law, and in recognition of which he will enforce the covenant's sanctions against those who rebel against it. End of quote. Remarkable things there. Jewish scholar and exegete Shalom Paul writes similarly, and I quote, all of mankind is considered the vassal of the Lord, whose power, authority, and law 
embrace the entire world community of nations. His sovereignty is not confined merely to the territorial borders of Israel and Judah. The Lord enforces the law he authors and imposes punishments against his rebel vassals. His law binds all peoples, for the God of Old Testament Israel is the God of all nations. The Lord of Israel, who has absolute sovereignty over the entire universe, decrees the destinies of all nations in accordance with strict moral criteria, what I would call his moral law. And every nation that does not abide by his ethical standards is condemned to annihilation. End of quote. Thus, the source of law is not legal positivism, that is the tyrannical doctrine, asserting that there, are, there is no higher authority than the state, and law is whatever the state says it is. Neither is the source of law autonomous, ambiguous, natural law. Rather, the source of law is God's revealed word, which is infallibly recorded in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. The source of law for any society is the God of that society. Why? Because law defines right and wrong, justice and injustice. And no one has the prerogative to do that but God alone. There is one lawgiver, James 4.12 says. Civil magistrates are to be law receivers, not lawgivers or law creators. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah 33.22. One's lawgiver is his ruler and savior. To choose to live under man's laws rather than God's law results in oppression and a broken judicial system, Hosea 5.11 tells us. When God's law is not applied, obeyed, and enforced, justice never goes forth, but perverse judgment proceeds, Habakkuk 1.4. The implications of God's universal covenant with all nations are profound and understood by few Christians today. The triune Lord requires all nations to live according to his moral law, infallibly recorded in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And the civil magistrates of all nations are required to govern according to this triune God's revealed law. Covenantal blessings and covenantal judgments come upon nations accordingly. Thus, God's universal covenant with all nations places severe limitations on the authority of civil magistrates. A second God-ordained limitation on the authority of civil magistrates is jurisdictional limitation. God has ordained three covenantal institutions, family, church, and state, having separate jurisdictions. The family derives from God the Father. The family is a creation ordinance, Genesis 2. Church and state are not creation ordinances. Civil government neither defines the family nor is the Lord over the family. The biblical jurisdiction of family includes at least seven areas. Marriage, child raising, property ownership, business ownership, inheritance, education, and welfare. Such rights do not derive from any human government, but from the triune God of the Bible, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. 
Fathers do not need permission from the civil government to do what God the Father has commissioned them to do, such as work to provide for their family, protect their family, educate their children, etc. Fathers have a God-given responsibility to protect their God-given jurisdiction. Christian families are a threat to tyrannical civil governments. That is why tyrants, such as Marxist dictators, inevitably establish policies to usurp the God-given role and authority of the family, demanding people's absolute allegiance to themselves. The God-ordained jurisdiction of the church includes the public ministry of God's word, worship, and sacraments, and the diaconal ministry. Churches do not need and should not ask or seek permission from the civil government to do what the one and only head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, has commissioned her to do. Church leaders have a God-given responsibility to protect their God-given jurisdiction. It is not possible for the church to fully obey the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ without meeting together. Civil magistrates have no authority to interfere with or hinder God-ordained church activities, such as by declaring churches to be non-essential, decreeing lockdowns, or forbidding ministry to the sick. Churches who obey men rather than God, contra Acts 5.29, are exalting Caesar to be the head of their churches. Such churches are, in fact, non-essential. The God-ordained jurisdiction of the state includes the administration of civil justice and military defense against attacking nations. However, it does not include offensive warmongering like my country specializes in. Thus, the God-ordained separate jurisdictions of the three covenantal institutions, family, church, and state, place severe limitations on the authority of civil magistrates. A third God-ordained limitation on the authority of civil magistrates is God's commanded submission of all civil magistrates to his son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures, the resurrected Jesus Christ is presently the King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and head over all things. He presently possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. He is Lord of all, as the Apostle Peter treasonously asserted to a Roman military commander, recorded in Acts 10.36. God the Father is commanding all kings, rulers, and judges to bow in submissive obedience to his Son, now in history, not merely after the second coming of Christ. The nations are the Son's inheritance from his Father. Thus, there can be no religious or political neutrality toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it differently, there is no such thing as a religiously neutral civil government. Thus, God's commanded submission of all civil magistrates to his divine son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, severely limits the authority of civil magistrates. By way of summary so far, First, God's universal covenant with all nations. Secondly, the jurisdictional limitations of family, church, and state. And third, 
God's commanded submission of all civil magistrates to his divine son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, severely limit the God-given authority of all civil magistrates. God has not granted them autonomous, absolute authority to decree whatever they wish. In the remainder of my lecture, I would like to briefly address the limits of Christians' obedience to civil magistrates. In my book, Tyrants Are Not Ministers of God, What the Bible Teaches About Civil Disobedience, Romans 13 and Quarantine, I suggest 13 distinct situational categories that allow or even mandate civil disobedience, offering a plethora of biblical, God-endorsed examples for each. These categories include when we are prohibited from doing what God has commanded, when commanded to do what God has prohibited, when defending the jurisdiction of the family or the church, when interposition is needed, whether private, familial, ecclesiastical, or civil interposition, when a civil magistrate gives an unlawful order that hinders your calling, divine commands to flee persecution, when a civil magistrate makes illegal something that's a fundamental God-given responsibility and therefore a right of every person. For example, the right to work and to provide food for one's family or the right to self-defense. When God calls a church to become an underground church. And finally, when prophetic rebuke is warranted. There is not time to discuss this vital material today. However, I will make a few brief comments regarding Romans 13. Romans 13 has frequently been misinterpreted as mandating absolute obedience to civil magistrates, such as the divine, the doctrine of the divine right of kings. Sometimes this misguided teaching has had deadly consequences, such as German Nazi leaders asserting that Christians owed absolute allegiance and obedience to Adolf Hitler citing Luther's interpretation of Romans 13 as proof. But is this really what the passage teaches? In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul describes God's civil servants, diakonos, as rulers who are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Romans 13.3. Paul then proceeds to teach that good works are defined by God's moral law. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. This comports with the fact that Paul had already told the Roman church that God's law is just and good. Chapter 7, verses 12, 13, and 16. Thus, whatever contradicts or is opposed to God's law must be unjust and evil. Logically, this context forces us to conclude that Romans 13 depicts civil magistrates prescriptively, that is, as God has called them to function. It does not describe those civil magistrates who are antinomian tyrants who believe that they are God, as we read about in 2 Thessalonians 2, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Revelation 13. Mass murderers like Nero, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, and Robert Mugabe have no God-given authority to define good and evil, justice and injustice, 
however they please. God's infallible word alone, particularly his law, defines good and evil, justice and injustice. Those civil magistrates punishing people for doing what is good and just, while rewarding people for doing what is evil and unjust, are not ministers of God. They are tyrants. Christians are not under biblical obligation to honor and obey the unjust dictates of tyrants. To correctly interpret Romans 13, we must remember that a fundamental hermeneutical rule in interpreting scripture is to put it into its historical, geographical, cultural, and religious setting, asking the question, what did this mean to the people to whom it was written? Pastors have often failed to do this with Romans 13. Additionally, they have often disregarded a second fundamental rule of hermeneutics, that is, a specific passage must be interpreted in light of the teaching of all Scripture. To Roman officials in the first century Roman Empire, the teaching of Romans 13, 1 through 7, was radically subversive of Caesar's claims and his rule. Romans 13 would be offensive to Roman authorities, since they are depicted as servants of the God of the Jews, even the God who revealed himself in Jesus the Messiah, who was convicted and executed by Roman authorities for the crime of sedition. Listen to this sample quote from one well-known scholar. The gospel and rule of Jesus the Messiah, the world's true Lord, subverted the gospel and rule of Caesar, whose cult was growing fast in precisely the cities, Corinth, Ephesus, and so on, where Paul spent most of his time. The commentator then adds this caveat. This does not mean uh, a holy anarchy in the present and over-realized eschatology in which the rule of Christ has already abolished all earthly governments and magistrates. But it does mean that the rulers are not themselves divine. They are set up by the one God, and they owe this God allegiance. Romans 13 constitutes a severe demotion of arrogant and self-divinizing rulers. It is not an undermining of, or it is, I'm sorry, it is an undermining of totalitarianism, not a reinforcement of it. End of quote. We must not allow people to unchallengingly twist Paul's teaching in Romans 13 into support for statist policies that one denies civil magistrates uh, covenantal obligations to obey and implement God's law, two, ravage the God-ordained institutions of family and church, or three, revolt in anarchy against the sovereignty, dominion, empire of God, mediatorially ruled by his divine son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, may we be faithful to teach and practice these truths especially in this day of tyrannical, solitary confinement of the healthy, which amounts to in-house arrest, mandatory wearing of disease-promoting masks, and quasi-compulsory experimental COVID mRNA, quote, vaccines, which are not vaccines at all, but are gene therapy designed to reprogram your DNA. In this battle with church-hating, satanically inspired tyrants, 
with their incessant propaganda psyops and false prophets in the media, as well as having to deal with massive defections by much of the evangelical church, I exhort you to be faithful soldiers of the resurrected and presently reigning Lord Jesus Christ. For as Martin Luther wrote in his immemorial hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Amen.